everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall with this week's long-form episode here on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, a couple corporate updates, but a lot of volatility in the markets. Precious metals, gold, silver kind of falling through support here this week. Uh, it's not very pretty at all. But we'd welcome in a new guest, but somebody who's probably uh, pretty familiar to a lot of you out there. Uh, John Fennick of Fennick Consulting finally makes his first appearance on Mining Stock Daily. I met him back at the Beaver Creek Precious Metal Summit weeks ago. Uh, but we talk about his unique approach to the junior mining equities. And uh, maybe maybe not a shock to you at all, but he's not a buy and hold kind of guy. He's the kind of guy is, you know, buy the dip, sell the rip type of mentality and not holding on to those things for very long. So we talk about his consulting approach and investing approach to this market. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Fireweed Metals, and Arizona Snoring Copper for their continued support of the podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, hit that like, subscribe, share all the things to help us get out the good word of the junior mining equities, because I think they're starting to see some more interest perking up on the contrarian plays here. So we'll be paying close attention. All right, everybody, here's my long form, John Fennick. Have a wonderful week. Uh, Mr. John Fennick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Trevor. Nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. Uh, I, I've, I've heard you in, in other uh, commentary, another uh, mining podcast as well. I uh, feel kind of guilty that this is your first appearance on Mining Stock Daily. That's nobody's fault except my own. Uh, but a little bit of a, a, a little backdrop here. You and I actually met in Beaver Creek. Uh, I, I I was just swamped with obviously a ton of interviews and meetings. And in the last day, uh, Jessica Leventhal you know, pulled me aside with you and said, you two need to get to know each other. And so we had a great discussion for as little time as we had. Uh, so it was a pleasure to to meet you. That was, I mean, it feels like a long time ago. It was only a couple of weeks ago, but it feels like such a long time ago, John, because so much has changed since right. then we've got a uh we've got a major sell-off in the long end of the bond yield curve uh precious metals have fallen through the cracks and 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 provided fishing lines and not only the metals but a lot of the the equities as well and so we've got an array of topics that you and i are going to chat about over the course of the next few minutes uh but first since this is your first time on the podcast i think we deserve a little bit of an introduction into John Fennick and Fennick Cons- Consulting. So give us a sense of your background and career. Sure, yeah. For those that want a more in-depth look, it's fennickconsulting.com and just hit about and you can see my bio there. But I started as an equity analyst in 1992 uh, in the dark ages, uh, working for Merrill Lynch Funds um, and got into sales for Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan and Sprott uh, for most of my career, sales meaning of mutual funds, ETFs, private equity, et cetera. So I've, I've, I've really gone out there and talked about packaged products to financial advisors, specifically in the U.S. Um, and that led me to, um, in 2019, when I was at Precious Metal Summit, again, four years ago to, from the day we met pretty much, um, 
And I did a little talk there and had three mining CEOs come up to me and said, hey, you're really passionate about the space. You should do something, you know, on the consulting side for us as, as CEOs. We need a voice like this. And I was surprised because uh, I had no intention of starting this business. But at that point in my life, Trevor, I was at a point where I could step away uh, from my current job. I had financial independence, thankfully. And I started this business four years ago with no clients. Uh, and it was humbling because my first, you know, three to six months were pretty tough. Um, the mining space, as you know, is not forgiving and, and it is difficult to start from zero. Um, but as I started to talk more to CEOs, I realized that there is an opportunity to help them with not only their websites, but also just general dis decision making, right? I mean, when you're managing a small mining company, you have a lot of decisions to make so that you don't become an Alexco. No offense to Alexco, but seriously, they could have raised a lot more money at two bucks, at three bucks, we're at a dollar, right? And then they sell for 44 cents to Hecla and, and you're sitting there saying, what just happened? It's not just water, it's bad management. And I, and I stand by that. We never owned it. Um, but, you know, honestly, like there's a lot of people making bad decisions in any sector. It's not just mining. And so I like working with mining CEOs and CFOs and just saying, do you really need to attend this conference this year? You've done it three years in a row. What accretive, you know, you know, stuff is happening out of that because you keep seeing the same kind of clients. So, you know, it's like you're just just trying to help them manage their balance sheet a bit better um, because we are entering a difficult time in the markets. Right. And who knows what happens in 2024 with the financial markets, if they tighten up even further, that can't be a good thing if you're a mining company looking to raise money. So you have to think outside the box. And thinking outside the box to me is combining some type of marketing strategy with good results, right? Because you see a lot of mining companies going with just good results and no marketing with really bad website. Um, that's not a strategy, in my opinion, in this market, because that was three years ago. If you put out good drill results in the summer of 2020, you were kicking. You know, but now you are not. Um, the market shrugs off good results. In fact, it's almost a reason to sell. Um, so it's not just the good results. It's coming up with a business plan, right? You and I have seen many, many companies put out, you know, uh, reports over the last three years, I'd say now, with Argonaut kicking it off in the Q4 of three years ago with higher expenses, higher costs. How are you going to address this? Let's be honest about that and not just put the report out and hide. It's like you have to go out there and defend what you're doing. Like when a customer, when a, when a client of mine sees a $250 million CapEx, they're saying, John, this market cap is $15 million. How are they going to do this? It's a reasonable question, right? So yeah. getting back to my backdrop, you know, um, I've been doing this four years now. I started to do podcasts in, in spring of 2020 when I exposed a company called Direction, which was, if you remember, the ETF vendor that was responsible for JNUG and Nugget, which at the time was the double, excuse me, the triple GDX, triple. the triple GDXJ, right? Yeah. And they were they were slipping. If you look at their performance in March of 2020, they were not keeping up with the action. And I don't know how that happened, but it happened. So I called them out on it. I called the company five times for comment before I went and wrote an article for Kitco, and I co-wrote that with another you know mining exec. And then I got two calls from people like you the next day saying, hey, that took some guts, come on my show. And that's how I started to do podcast and radio more. Um, and it's been awesome. It's great. It's a great way to reach clients, and I'm just thankful that I'm in this position. So, I mean, there's a lot of bullet point items in there that I think we are definitely going to cover in this conversation, but I do want to go back and 
get a better sense and understanding of like it sounds like you have this incredible career from Wall Street you talked with you know with the big institutions but what's not clear to me and I'm hoping you can you can put put to bed here is where this interest in mining and metals whether it be the base metals or precious metals came from and how that yep. has evolved from you know starting in 1992 at Merrill Lynch to really uh, that 2019 appearance of the Precious Metal Summit. What was it that really kind of hit that trigger in your brain that really wanted to get you, have you focus on that? It's as clear as day to me. In 2000, I was losing money in tech stocks. I went to my Merrill Lynch advisor at the time and I said, hey, I, I didn't realize there was this much volatility in tech. Tell me what I need to do to hedge my portfolio. And he advised me to go look at gold and silver and related. And that's 23 years ago, how I got started in our sector with the physical side. Um, and in 2008, when it got really bad in mining stocks, I started to cold call CEOs. Uh, few come to mind are you know, Keith Newmeyer at AG, Mitch Krebs at CDE, down a long list of kind of the mid-tiers and, and juniors and just say, what am I missing here? Why are these stocks getting smoked? And the, the answer was kind of just like, hang in there, it's going to get better, right? I mean, that was the theme. And if you look at, I think it was like around January of, of 09 to let's call it June or July of 09, GDXJ was up huge. Like it was up, I think, over 100%. And so, you know, basically that really caught my interest. And then you, you know what happened after that. 09 led to 10 to 11 to 12 to all-time highs for gold at the time. And I got, you know, the bug like so many investors do. And, and, and it, it hooked me. So that's what got me interested more in mining. In 2016, I had an opportunity to um, help Sprott build out their U.S. Uh, distribution. So I started to run money uh, for myself alongside of that publicly. And then I you know, started to attract a following that way because our numbers are decent. And um, that's, that's pretty much the genesis. But your, your approach to mining equities is i don't know if it's un, it, it's not unique in the general sense but it might be a little unique to resource investors and speculators like you do not believe in this buy and hold mentality uh you know it kind of reminds me of the sense brent johnson said in a presentation last year at like the vancouver resource investment conference he, he said something along the similar lines like you, the mining stocks are not buy and hold you should be renting mining stocks you know, basically for short profits. I mean, yeah, so talk I mean, about how like this is this is a. I mean, this kind of goes against the grain in this space. Look, I do everything that I do for trying to have clients have a good experience, and and I haven't done a good job of that in a year like last year, right? I mean, the sector was down, I think twenty two, and we were down nineteen and change. I, I don't like being down at all. I'm very competitive, but. Um, I guess to just modify what you said, we buy and hold uh, companies that we have conviction in where I have strength. I'll give you an example. So Stillwater Critical Minerals, uh, PGEZF in the States, they have a deposit in Montana that's attached to a major's deposit, which is known as Sabanier Stillwater, which is SBSW. Okay, mm -hmm. I have owned in that sector of the market, meaning Montana, for 11 years. I started with SWC, which was Stillwater. That those shares got sold to, you know, Sabanier through the transaction. Sabanier bought them. And then I owned Sabanier. And then I, I noticed on an aerial map, holy cow, there's this little junior attached 
to your deposit. Tell me more about that. And I asked Neil and his team about that. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's Stillwater. And Neil, Neil and, and his team are not the type to just buy companies right away. They're going to take their time and think about it, right? That's how a lot of majors operate, as you know. So I got to know Mike Rowley over at Stillwater three years ago through a cold call. And I'm just really impressed with the project. I mean, it's literally at a three-year low almost as we speak right now at 0.117 cents U.S., which is nuts. Um, but, you know, they, they had a pretty interesting news release two and a half years ago when they brought in two geos from Ivanhoe. So, you know, I got to spend a couple of dinners with these guys, and they think they're onto a really big deposit there. And you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to be patient. I made the wrong entry point, by the way, Trevor. I started that stock at 20 and a half cents, right? So I'm buying more yesterday at 12. That's one of the things that we do differently, I think, as well as PMs, is we can admit our mistakes on the entry. And we're not going to sit on our hands and say we made a mistake and never do anything about it. If we have conviction and we go back to the CEO like we did with Mike on a regular basis every couple of weeks and just make sure the thesis is intact. We're going to add on di- on dips like this. And I know you're kind of in the same you know mindset of like, let's add when things are down. That's the whole, that's, that's how you make money. If I bought originally at 20 and a half and I'm, I'm buying double the position at 12, well, my blended cost is around 16 and a quarter, right? So like, I think the stock's worth way more than 16 and a quarter over the next one to two years. Yeah. Uh, Mike and his team are exceptional people. They've done a really good job with that project, but they're doing it methodically, I would say. Uh, I've, I've been follow- I'm not a shareholder myself, but I have been uh, following their progression. I think Mike and I had an interview a couple of months ago where he came on the podcast just for okay. an update. I, I, should, I, should, I should have him back on. Uh, he's probably listening. He'll probably <laughs> shoot me an email. <laughs> He'll be on next week. Uh, but, you know, but th- this idea of that, and, and talk about timing, like, you know, that phrase, the best place to explore for a new mine is in the shadows of a head frame, similar to Stillwater Critical mm-hmm. Minerals. But the timing is always the unknown, right? Like, I think a great example right now would be like Barksdale's Sunnyside Project, what they are now finally drilling, obviously really testing that extension of the Taylor deposit, which they know is in there, which they know is on their ground here, you know, but... Th- that I think that investment thesis, if you are going for a buyout, then you've got to be very patient because it's not going to be on your terms. It's going to be on the terms of the purchaser. And talk about really that risk, that, 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 that time decay of risk. I mean, do you have to really have a, uh, you know, guts of steel here, here if you're going to play that type of investment thesis? You do have to have guts of steel, as you said. I mean, it, it, this this sector is extremely volatile, and it will surprise you. And by surprise you, let's just go back to the same example. Stillwater in June put out a 9.9% investment from Glencore, right? That brought them in just under $5 million Canadian. That's pretty huge, considering they were at the brink of having to do a raise, right? So they avoid dilution to shareholders, love that. But then they take on this investment and the stock goes from 12 cents to 17.3 cents. Nice rally. But now it's faded all the way back to 12. So why wouldn't I buy it here? Like that was a huge deal for the company, right? Like that's that's what I'm trying to impress upon people is that when you give up 10% or so of your company, it's a major event. It doesn't, doesn't happen in like one month of phone calls. It had happened over a couple of years for Mike. Mike worked really hard on that deal. So, so it's like... You can see that at Palladium One, they did the same thing at nine point nine with Glencore earlier this year. Stock popped, it actually doubled, and now it's back below that price. <laughs> like, so, so you know, that's the problem that clients see, right, Trevor? Because it's like 
Well, hey, hold on a second. I, I bought this with the idea that you said that was good news. Yeah, it was good news. And the market faded it. So you have to then, again, test your thesis. Go back to those two CEOs and say, is this still like a good investment for, for, for me based on what kind of timeline, right? Because to your point, it does take time. I'm not looking at Stillwater as a, as a takeover in three months. I'm looking at it as a, as a takeover in maybe one to two years as palladium, platinum, rhodium, and, the, and nickel start to do better, right? Because we're if you look at platinum and palladium right now, they're at multi-month lows. I mean, this isn't mm-hmm. the best time to buy something, I guess. But as a value manager, to me, I know those two metals are going up over time, and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable owning it here. So let's talk about timing and where we're at now here, John, because as we mentioned, since the first time you and I met a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's been a lot of volatility in the market. Uh, sure. Not only, I mean, it's really been on the back of the the rise in treasury and bond yields here. I mean, the huge sell off uh, today is we're recording this Wednesday, and I'd say maybe things are a little bit less volatile. We're not making uh, massive new uh, multi year uh, highs in yields, uh, so we'll see how the rest of the week plays off. But it has it has ramifications not only in precious metals and base metals, but also the general stock market. I mean. Kind of give me a sense of kind of what you were watching and how you were, you know, taking in these volatile moves over the last week and a half. I mean, what were your takeaways? Not surprised because September 20th to me, Powell was very much like, hey, we've been telling you for months that we mean business and we mean business. Now, again, do they mean business? That's always the question. I. If you look at my work at, at Kitco, just to take one channel, March and June of last year with David Lynn on big, big, you know, 100,000 view kind of things, I said, the Fed means business because I'm seeing 75 basis point hikes, right? That is huge. And I got trolled a lot for that. Um, in fact, David even said in the June interview, you know, you're the only person I've interviewed out of eight or so people that think that we're not going towards a pause or a cut later this year. And I said to him off camera, I would have every incentive to tell you that. But I've just got to say it like I see it, right? And right now, the way I see it is different. The Fed has raised so many times that we probably see another quarter point coming. My guess is December, if I were to guess today, Trevor, because there's a 32% probability that we're going to see a quarter point hike in December's meeting, whereas November only has an 18% probability on November 1st, right? And being that the Fed is data dependent, that could change quickly, Um one of the other things I've noticed is is how recent news since we met in September has been digested. So we met on September 14th. On September 15th, consumer confidence comes out in the U.S., right? And not not good. Third straight decline in a in, you know, monthly decline in a row. The broad market tanked, GDX, gold, and silver all up, right? That's positive. We want to see more days like that to me where our sector is zigging when the broad market is zagging. That's what we need to see more of. We saw more of that again yesterday, October 3rd, with the job, uh, the JOLTS job openings, right? Um, 8.8 million job openings expected. 9.6 million was the, uh, was the actual. An 800,000 job differential. That got the broad market tanked right away. If you looked at what happened at 10 o'clock Eastern yesterday, the S&P, NASDAQ, Dow, uh, and Russell all, all just nosedived and, and finished really badly. So how did GDX and gold and silver do? They were all flat. Now, Flat isn't what investors are in this space for. But again, it's showing you, I think, the early stages of bigger money starting to realize that our sector could be used as you know, a hedge against broad market activity. 
It really seemed that the precious metals sector started really falling off as soon as um, the long end of the curve, the 30 and 10 years, started making massive moves. The short end, I, I felt like, you know, the short end, the two years that, that I've been watching for a, a lot in the last couple of years, have was been basically stable. It's been that late, those 10s and 30 years, the, the later stage of the curve, that's where a lot of the, that's where all this volatility is coming. Um, and so I guess I wasn't surprised to see this. Now, we had Jim Bianco on last week, mm-hmm. and his thesis was these moves in the in, in the later stage of the curve is actually just following the neutral rate. And he said this is not restrictive enough, actually. Like, despite the, what the Fed says, this is, given where the neutral rate is, this is not restrictive uh, restric- restrictive policy as as much as it needs to be. Um and so I told him, I was like, listen, if that's if this isn't restrictive and you're talking six, seven percent, that scares the hell out of me as a precious metals guy. Right. Can we even get there? I mean, in your sense, and I, I want to get all sides here. You can everybody's able to constructively agree or disagree. I mean, can we go higher than another quarter percentage point raise from the Fed in December? Because I agree with you. I think we're going to get it. I think we're going to get another one. But can we go higher than that? I think we might go another quarter next year before the cuts uh, pause, the real pause comes, right? Like this was a hawkish pause by the Fed, you know, over the last few months. It's not, it's not the actual pause, which I think will occur next year. And then that will lead to cuts because they they have gone over their skis. That's why I said, like, I was more constructive last spring and summer thinking the Fed would be hawkish. Now I'm like, you know what? They've gone so far that, this is probably another maximum 50 basis points up from here, uh, including mm-hmm. that 25 I'm, I'm referencing possibly in December. So so how many months does that or how many meetings does that take, though? Right. It could take into next summer to get to that to that point. Um, so I'm not of the, the mindset we're going to see cuts immediately, because when you look at what the Fed minutes have shown, it's it's showing out of 19 people, not one thinks a cut. <laughs> that that actually happened in June, July, and September. Well, we don't know about the September 20 meeting yet because the Fed minutes are coming in October, of course. But but like 12 of the 19 people out of the the last meeting in September want another 25 basis point hike by year end. So that's why I'm thinking December might be that time frame, and then the Fed can feel good about you know holding the line, so to speak. Um, and the broad market is now adjusting to that rhetoric, right? It's like, that's what's happened since September 20th. You had these perma bulls that were like, you know, all-time high on the Russell and the NASDAQ and the S&P. No thanks. That's not happening. Like, you can clearly see that we bounced right off a of resistance on all three of those indexes, and now we're heading lower. I mean, the S&P was flirting with 4,200 yesterday. Uh, I'm in the camp and have been since May that we're going to crack through 4,200 by year-end. Um, that would bring in a test of 4,000. And, and then you start seeing some people say, oh, um, this isn't what I signed up for, right? Like, so yeah. that's what we need to see more of, in my opinion, just my opinion. But people ask, what's the catalyst? One of the catalysts is the broad market cooling off a bit. Yeah, well, in the tech sector has just been hanging on by a thread with that those magnificent seven companies really keeping... Uh, the Qs and the Nasdaq from really falling through support. Uh, I was watching yesterday. I thought for sure 
yesterday it was going to finally crack and uh nope it it tried for momentarily then came right back up and obviously we're up again here on wednesday but let's talk about tech i mean you said that uh you know that 2000 and and that tech bubble you 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 cut your teeth a little bit uh you know there's nothing teach you teaches you how to make money better than losing a bunch of money (laughs) and what are the similarities what are the similarities uh from you know that 2000 era and that tech bubble did you are you seeing here in the 2023 tech bubble if i may say so well, one of the things that's different from 2000 to 2003's correction in tech to today and a potential correction is algorithmic buying and selling, right? Things happen so much faster, Trevor, as you know now. So I don't think you're going to run into like a decade-long like malaise like some people think. I do say, though, that if you're buying anything technology, you got to pull up a 20-year chart. You can't pull up a three- and five-year. you got to go back to pre-08, in my opinion, and look at what your pain points could be. And I'll give you an example. So I was at Merrill, as I said, in 2000. We had uh, Larry Fuller, who was a great growth manager. Um, We competed with another company, Alliance, that had uh, Al Harrison, another great growth manager. These guys are like, you know, icons of that time. And they both loved Intel. And the presentations were done at $80 and $60 a share. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll be smart, and I'll buy 100 shares at 40, you know? Well, 40 became into the teens. I forget where Intel bottomed, but let's just say 10 bucks, right? So at some point during the recession, I'm at 10. I'm down 75%. And I'm like, what do I do? So you know what I did? I held it for a decade plus, and I made my money back. It took over 10 years to get back to par $40 on INTC. So that is the lesson that I want to impart upon your listeners is that when you think you're going to buy an Amazon here at 130 and you're good, Go back and look at 2008-09. I think it was around 10 bucks. Like, is that acceptable? Can you take a loss from 130 to 10? I don't think so. Well, it's never going to happen, right? It, it, but 130 to 110 could happen. I mean, if you're down a little bit like that, are you comfortable? Are you able to hold in there? To me, I don't think the average client is is prepared for what kind of losses we're seeing. And I can just give you a couple. Look at Pfizer. I mean, Pfizer was the the the, the uh, poster child of COVID and helping out the world, right? I mean, PFE stock rallied hard on on their COVID news. And now it just bounced last week off a multi-year low. I mean, it's got a real dividend. It's a real company. That's something as a value manager that that we're tracking, uh, clearly not in our mining or energy portfolios, but just on the side to say, you know, wow, this thing's really gotten thrown out the window. That's, That's really what worries me about the average investor out there that they don't have the experience that I have to say, wow, you know, like this is a really difficult time in history to get things correct. We all talk about like what the S&P is doing, right? To your point, the S&P biggest ETF out there, SPY, is 26.1% in technology in the top 10, not in the ETF, as of August 30th, uh, August 31st. So, Bottom line is you have to look under the hood as to what you own. In your 401k, it feels good because you own stuff like that, right? But what is generating that alpha and outperformance? It's like you said, the Magnificent Seven. It's like seven stocks in technology that are being bought in things like S&P products. They're being bought in you know more aggressive products. And I think there's just a lot of overlap maybe in a potential customer's holdings and they don't know that you know apple may be owned in four of the 12 products they own 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, why own anything? Just buy NVIDIA. I mean, that's a, that's the mentality, right? Uh, right. You know, but I do want to talk about the I – mean, not the likelihood, but the prospects of an actual rate cut by the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve. And, uh, John, I'm not sure – I think I can't remember where you said you live, but I've, um, you know, here in Colorado, there's a lot of anecdotal things like the amount of housing that has been built over the last three years, multifamily housing. Uh, I've seen less cranes than I did two years ago in Denver. Okay. I mean, 2022, 2021, 22 was nuts. I mean, I think I counted at least a, a dozen to 20 cranes driving along I-70. Um but we're seeing reports of nonprofits that help with um, vacancies. Their incoming calls are being just their, their phone. Their phones are going off the hook. Are people mm-hmm. who need help with being vac- uh, vacated or evicted? Excuse me. So there's like these little anecdotal things. I'm hearing other evidence that delinquency on rentals are like really high. Uh, the Fed published a report this week where. Credit card debt. Obviously, in general, we're seeing a higher uptick in credit card uh, uh, debt and delinquencies. But if you remove the top 100 banks from that equation, credit card delinquencies are at a raging all-time high. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, the listen, the data is the data. So why not look at this and be like, there are serious issues within the banking sector that really, when they start reporting and the next month could really uh, show that the emperor has no clothes still. Uh, there's a lot of information there. Let's start with real estate. So, <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. Um, yeah. With real estate, you know, I, I've been very vocal since last summer on all of my podcasts. When, when I get asked a question about interest rates, I have to, I feel compelled to talk about real estate because real estate is an asset that has done so well. Um, no matter where you live in the U.S., pretty much, I mean, over the last five plus years, right? And you've made all this money. So I don't believe in shorting things or telling people to do anything without doing it myself. So I sold every rental home or vacation home I have over the last 12 to 15 months. And really sell at the right time? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure someone got some meat on the bone there. Good for them. Like, I don't care. I don't have the stress now of in 2024 competing with my neighbors to sell into a market where inventories just get flooded potentially, right? Because we haven't seen economic data to really justify, oh, we're entering the recession yet. But when we do, I would argue that there's people ready to hit that sell button quick. And and that's sort of like what I'm seeing, you know, throughout when I I travel a lot. And I travel in the U.S., I still see a ton of building, not necessarily in a, in a city center or downtown. It's like 45 minutes, an hour outside. That's kind of like a, a red flag to me, you know, where yeah. where people are just willing to buy these ridiculously priced, you know, condos or whatever that are a huge drive from where they got to be at work. Um, and then look at oil prices and gas prices, right? It's like if you're at the pump. Uh, in Colorado, it's probably about five bucks, you know, for premium or whatever, right? It's it's like not cheap to get around. It's not going to get any cheaper, I don't think. Um, and so it's it's really stressing out the American consumer. To your point again about the credit card debt, I've been a big believer in that um, thesis that that we have gone over our skis with spend. I think though that we will get one more good Christmas spend period. 
um, because people are slow to learn, right? They're greedy at, yeah. at their core right now, unfortunately. And I think they're just going to extend themselves to the brink. Um, and then next year, it's it's more of a comeuppance, right? Like Because people don't just change their behavior on a dime. Well, and I think the reason I kind of spit out a couple of those data points was because my my thesis currently and what's I'm working with in the back of my head and I'd love to get your feedback on this is in the last couple of days I've, I've been out there and I said like, I, I am, I've been buying a lot of my junior gold positions at, at these steps. I, okay. I feel pretty, I feel confident and I'll, and I'll tell you why and I'll, I'll lay it out here for you and everybody listening is if you go back to early March when SVB collapsed, gold started a 22% rally from, it was like 1600 bucks per ounce. Uh, and that eventually took us up to testing those all-time highs. With the data and anecdotal evidence I am seeing, I think that we could see, I'm not calling saying it's going to be a collapse, but I think these regional banks are in really big trouble. And they start reporting financials in three weeks. Right. Now, I don't think necessarily we need to have a bank collapse again. But I think, like I said, knowing if we see that those regional banks are under distress, that we could see another pop in precious metals as a safe haven because the optics of it will just look, here we go again. Um, so that's my general that's that's my general thesis and why I'm 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 hoping I'm right. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But my play is to add on to these these gold equities because I think that I, I, I just really think that the timing's pretty ripe. I want to get in front of it before, you know, I'm chasing. Yeah. So we've also said on many programs that we're short financials um, because of my background in the financial world. Um, I understand that, you know, when you see a Jamie Dimon write a letter to shareholders in April of this year, literally a couple of weeks after the collapse of many names, he said there's going to be more pain to come. Go back and take a look at it. It's, it's like that guy is running the biggest bank in the U.S. and he's saying there's more pain to come. Uh, I'll... I'll believe it, you know, um, right. and yeah. so I've been shorting financials as a sector ever since, well, really September of last year, because I worked at Credit Suisse for a year and, and I just didn't like a lot of what was happening there. Um, so we were correct on that call, but we've been, gosh, I, I can't remember the, the name of the one bank that went under that we called at $10, but um, we, we have, we have current shorts on Wells Fargo. Um, because I, I think they just can't get out of their way. Look at the news flow over the last one or two years. So many negative news items. Um, and that doesn't bode well when you're entering a period of, of earnings, right? Like it's, it's right. show me time. Earnings every 90 days, folks, it's show me time. And companies start to do, just to, to look at, you know, uh, oh, start disclosing things, right? Like you have to go out there and as a former analyst, read a lot of stuff that's on SEC filings or go to CDAR. It is a lot of work to go find things that you may not even know about a company because legally some of these companies aren't required to disclose certain things. So then you have to do your own homework, which you know the average client doesn't have the interest or, or expertise to do. That's why I think it's important that they partner with someone like us or someone else to help them understand that there's risk out there, right? Um, 
We've been using mostly FAZ, which is the triple short financials. That's beautiful looking chart. Um, we've been heavy into that between 16 and $17 a share is trading at 21 as we speak. So I think that that's something in, in moderation to look at, or just like to your point, the regionals, I think is KRE. I have to double check. Uh, it is the, it's yeah, the ETF. short KRE, you know, and, and, and then you've got exposure to pack West and all this other stuff that doesn't look wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my opinion. So, yeah, I, I think there's going to be more pain in financials. Um, and we think that, well, we don't think we, we know that after March's, um, you know, bankruptcies, gold got a bid, right? And, and to your point, silver got a bid. If you go back and look at April charts, everything started to look really good and then it faded. So, you know, as, as a buyer, like we said at the onset, if you got in on that rally in April at higher prices, why wouldn't you go back, you know, examine your thesis with the CEO or, or investor relations and buy more right now? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I wanted to throw out my thesis out there because, I, you know, that's the foundation. And so I'm hoping uh, by the time you and I meet again in person in Zurich at the Precious Metal Summit in Zurich in November, you know, things might be a different story. And so, you know, we can uh, join each so. other for a pint and talk about how wrong or right we were. <laughs> we'll, see how, we'll see how those things go. I, I, I do want to ask you about, you know, what – Underneath the charts and underneath the price movement, you know, what are you seeing? I mean, you and I both talk to a lot of people who are in, involved or not involved in this mining and, 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 and exploration sector. Um, you know, I gave a 45-minute a, a presentation last week to a room full of just incredible minds on the macro side. And I, I would I'd be honest with you, like, I was pretty surprised with – how little exposure a lot of those individuals had to not only uh, mining, but commodities in general and really how, what the process is right. of exploring for and developing mines, but the questions and just pure, um, uh, just intrigue that I got after that presentation really blew me away. I mean, I was a nervous wreck going into it. Um, <laughs> So I was glad it was over. But after my presentation was over, like I just got a ton of questions. Uh, these people had no exposure to it. And so, but there is, I, I see an interest there. Uh, I don't necessarily see, you know, obviously we're not seeing much of inflows into it. But like, are you seeing the, that quote unquote smart money finding some interest and in starting to kind of poke around the mining sector at all? Here and there, I mean, it's disappointing to me that at Precious Metal Summit in September, as well as at Denver Gold, which just followed that, I probably saw three financial advisors in, in, in out of like what three thousand plus people. Um, so less than one percent of the financial advisor community really is is spending any time to go to two awesome conferences. That's that's an opportunity, um, I think, because as we fast forward two years from now, that is not going to be the case. There's going to be a lot of advisors that I know because I've worked with them for years, you know, that are smart, but they, they might buy gold, Trevor, or they might buy silver. They're not going to buy – it's even a stretch for them to buy GDX, right, because they have to deal with clients that are going to say, how did this thing go from 30 to 2569 in two weeks? You know, it's like they don't want to even have that call, honestly. Um, so I get the mentality there. But when we get to a better place, meaning gold plus two thousand plus and silver breaking through twenty six, like there will be more interest in general because 
we already have the foundation for that. If you look at what happened in March with financials, we saw a nice interest in gold in, in, in April and in, in, into May, you know, and um, gold then held 1900 an ounce for, I believe, four and a half to five months without ever slipping below 1900 an ounce for a single day, which is incredible. Um, so I try to look at the positive and the negatives, right? Like it's not just looking at one or the other. You have to look at what actually happened. That's a positive if you're a gold bug, right? I mean, we, we haven't had an extended period of time above 1900 like that ever in history. So that's why I'm calling for all-time highs next year. I think that we came within five or six bucks this year and faded right at, right at resistance. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not going to make another run at that. So I'm, I'm in the camp of 2050 plus next year. And I think silver, once it breaks through that 25 to 26 you know, range, you could test 30 as early as next year, which is obviously major resistance. Do you feel that um, the metal will make have to make those runs before we get out of this junior equity kind of trough we're in? Hmm. That's a good question. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I, right. I think it's a case-by-case basis, right? And the reason I say that is you're seeing stocks pop on news now, which we didn't even see all summer. So I think that's positive, right? Look at right. September and what happened at Beaver Creek. Forum Energy was there. They talked about you know results at their Thelon Basin, which you know surprised people on the uranium side. Stock responded extremely well, went from six to fifteen cents in literally two weeks. I mean, that's real um, because there's so much negative. I would argue short selling by 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 naked shorts out there on some of these juniors that when they see a bid come in, they're running right. They're running to cover, and then you have real buying behind that, and that's a beautiful dynamic um, because I think. Some of these shorts were, are not going to go back and short something like uranium stocks now because look at the result, right? You, you lost money if you're doing that over the last you know two months. Um, so we just need more of that. We need more good results that are followed by you know the CEO going on shows like yours and talking up the story so that investors get an idea of the longer term plan. Um, so we use a rifle approach with juniors because of that. Uh, you know, it's not just. It's not just uh, sentiment or the price of the underlying commodity. It's what are these guys going to do within the next three to 12 months? Uh, tell, me, tell us more about your approach to consulting with these companies. And, you know, I, I know, you know, challenges are kind of by case by case basis. Uh, but what is, I mean, what is something that you provide that's maybe new or refreshing to these companies that, um, that need it, you know, maybe what are some of those themes of incoming calls you're receiving now? Well, without talking specifically about my competitors or, or, you know, individual companies, I think that the sector has paid up to banksters and other people for too long. Like, I mean, I'm looking at what companies will do during an offering, right? And that sometimes, again, not naming names, requires an upfront payment to a Canadian bank as a Canadian junior of $25,000 or more just to have the luxury of them picking up the phone and trying to find people to you know participate in a placement. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that isn't something that is going to change tomorrow. But let's just say it for what it is. If you can't do anything for that junior, don't make the call. Like, I mean, just don't bother these companies, right? But then I can tell you, Trevor, there's been at least three instances this year where the company, in some cases, I'll be working with them, 
will say, no thanks, we're going to raise just a million bucks into a bridge, you know, so we can get to the next level because we don't want to really dilute shareholders at this level. And then someone like me who's smart enough to look at level two quotes sees them shorting the stock. Like, come on, you know, it's like, stop being a baby and, and, and basically just like, you know, just move on to something else. Why hurt our sector? So I think that I one of the things I, I do well is talk to CEOs about this and say, this is not someone who's an advocate. I'm an advocate for you. I own the shares. Here's my position. I can show you my position, right? I can show you my trades. Um, I think that that resonates with people. Um, also, when we're consulting with them in a month like July and August, Trevor, I, I, I shuttered 70% of my contracts because I said, guys, this is a really difficult summer. There's no news flow that you have. The market is in a malaise, like just pay me nothing. And people love that too, right? Because I'm not asking them for money up front on a 12-month contract in January of this year. You'd be really disappointed, as just about any junior mining company would, if you signed that, right? Because I didn't right. see this happening this year. They didn't see it happening this year. We all thought we'd have a better year get, you know, based on the fact that kind of summer of 2020 was sort of the highs in our, in our sector for many names. So we do month to month, right? I'm, I'm out there trying to help them every single month. If I'm not doing my job, I can get fired. And so like, I take it very seriously. And I think that's what helps separate us a little bit. Um, but also Trevor, I, I try to work with whatever they have in place, right? I don't have all the answers. I do social media pretty badly. you know. So, so like I say, hey, you wanna get someone else to do that and I will work with them, you know, um, and we'll try to be a team for you, you know, as opposed to, me having all the answers or, 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 or you know, whatever. So um, uh, I, I really have a passion for it, though. Um, I think that our sector is misunderstood by so many people. When you look at just the market cap of not just the junior space, but the entire sector and compare it to a Google, Apple, whatever, it doesn't even come close to that market cap, right? So it's like all of the names that you and I talk to collectively aren't as big as one tech stock that's in the S&P. It's like crazy. So so crazy. what happens when we get a bid? What happens when gold goes to 2100 plus? That's what people need to start asking themselves because of the price action we saw this year, very bullish, I think, that we held that 1900 level for as long as we did. What about marketing? And, you know, do you... And I know I'm part of that marketing paradigm. This podcast is part of that, and, and I respect it and, and do not take it for granted. But I, you know, what the create uh, being creative as far as uh, who you're talking to? Because listen, I like I think that I think it's fair to say the last three years, John, uh, out of the two three thousand publicly traded companies, uh, junior equities out of Canada, they're they're all chasing the same pot of money. And talking to the same people, uh, where I mean, there's got, there, I think there's opportunities out there by taking a step away from, you know, the the Vancouver ritual of going to the banks, uh, doing a brokered placement, or having this them calling the same people they usually call. You know, there's other the demographics are out there. I guess a perfect example is you know me being from Nebraska. I always wonder, like, why not go to Omaha? Omaha's got a lot of money. The wealthiest man in the world, or whatever where he is now, is from <laughs> Omaha. Why are you not in Omaha? You know, right. I mean, is there a space for creative markets? 
Yeah, yeah finding new markets and putting and, and putting yourself out there. I'm not saying having one lunch is going to move your stock, but it, you got to start somewhere, don't you? Yeah, and um, that's another thing that we do. I think differently is that there are some good companies out there that do roadshows. Uh, for those that don't know what that means. Um, you know, it's basically, hey, we're going to be in Nebraska and we're going to do a lunch and we're going to do a dinner. And an entity might take five to $6,000 just to organize that one day for that mining company, right? Now, you have to really kind of bring in some business, I think, to, to justify that kind of cost. So when we're talking to consulting on the consulting side to companies, we say, look, I'm from Washington, D.C. If I can organize something for you, I'll do it for you for free. As part of like what we have working together, right? It's like included in the cost. It's not an extra cost. And so this is, you know, this is one of the things that I challenge um, a company to do. Say we do. Say they say that's fine, John, but we're going to do this thing in Nebraska anyway. Well, then what I want you to do is look at the fifteen attendees you had at lunch. Look at the twenty you had at dinner. Look at those thirty-five attendees and tell me who's who's doing business with your company, right? You have to you have to hold yourself accountable as a CEO. And say that didn't work. We tried it; it didn't work. Let's move on to something else. So, to that end, um, you know, Misha and Jessica and I talked probably like six months ago, and I was talking to them about Washington D.C. as a jurisdiction because, you know, I have a lot of U.S. retail in that area that I could bring to a conference that, let's face it, are not going to get on a plane and go to right. Denver and do what you and I did and drive two hours to Beaver Creek. It's not going to happen. So um, we just set this up. You may, have, you may have seen this, but it's, um, you know, April 29 and 30 is going to be the Energy Transition Summit um, next year. I'll be an advisor to that. Um, Misha and Jessica do a great job with precious metals, as you know, in Beaver Creek. So we're going to come with that same kind of format where companies can, um, you know, have 15 to 20 minutes in their own presentations, but also do a series of one-on-ones. And that's what I'm going to work really hard on doing is bringing in new retail from that part of the world to an event like that. Because that's probably the biggest complaint I get on the consulting side is that, hey, I just went to this conference and it's the same people, you know, from two or three years ago. It's like the same people trading my stock and this isn't accretive. Yeah, no, it's uh, I will. I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck with that uh, with that program Thanks. and project in dc I, I i i actually would love to attend that i think it'd be really interesting just to observe to see who comes in yeah of course um, we'll get you uh, yeah, yeah i would love to uh well let's talk about um before we wrap things up here john uh you and i are both slated to speak at uh, the zurich precious metals summit right uh g- give us a sense because you you gave a presentation beaver creek uh you know are you going to be mixing things up here and what you're going to talk about in november i mean things could change so yeah. So on that conference, I was with Michael Connor, who is um, at Inventa and Visla, and we had a good discussion. You know, he got a little bit more into the company side. I got more. I was trying to uh, approach that. If you look at PreciousSummit.com, you can see the presentation there. I was trying to approach it with a ETF background, right? Like if you want to play copper, you can buy CPER, or you can buy COPX. Mm-hmm. If you want to buy gold, you can buy GLD or you can buy GDX, right? So sort of like that kind of broader approach. I think I'm going to get more granular in November because of the people I'm speaking with. Um, they may take that role and talk about the backdrop for critical minerals or battery metals. And I might get you know more specific with individual names because I did that last year at Zurich. And I think every single stock except one was up since then because 
we got bombed out, if you remember, in November of last year. The timing was just good. And November and December are generally great times for investors to look at the junior space because things get extra pressure sometimes from uh, tax law season or you know hedge funds that may own a position that you're not even aware of that they have to square the books for December 31st and they're trying to get out at any price. It's like that's an opportunity for you to just call the company and say, hey, I see this big seller out there for the last week. Is this something material that I should be aware of or is it just a big seller? And a lot of times it is just a big seller. Yeah. Actually, that's very similar to what I thought I was watching in the charts last week when gold and silver were just getting destroyed and a lot of the equities uh, were throwing out fishing lines on their chart. It just kind of felt like somebody or some some funds were selling what they could, not what they mm-hmm. wanted. Um you know, I don't have anything to prove that, but it's just the amount of selling last week just kind of felt like something had to give. Somebody was selling so- as much as they could for some reason. But we're not right. hearing any, like, fall, you know, we're not hearing any sort of failures or of anything. Um, it's just such a volatile day. I mean, did, is, did this kind of seem similar to you in that aspect as well? You've seen those types of days in your career. Yeah, Um the selling right now is very disappointing considering that you could have some seasonal strength in September and October. But I think what's happening right now is that people are really watching the broad market much more than our sector. And they're watching mm-hmm. to see if the S&P can hold this 4,200, which it did yesterday. And it is obviously doing again today. So we want to see a break of something major like that to, I think, affect confidence in the broad market participants. We also have you know, non-farm payrolls coming up Friday, which is a big number generally for mining investors. Uh, then next week, we've got CPI and I believe the Fed minutes. So those are all big deals to watch to kind of judge you know, a week from now where we stand um, and how the Fed may you know, look at that data. So um, I'm still hopeful. I, I really believe that you, know, you want to hold stuff for a year plus right now so you can get that long-term cap gain, hopefully, if not a loss. But like, think about it that way. If you want a position just for a year plus, um, you're not going to find great values like this if gold breaks out like we think it will next year. Um, you're just not going to do it. it, it it's not going to be around. A lot of what the selling is right now, like you said, is legacy positions or it's just general disinterest. And general disinterest means that there could just could be a lack of bids out there. So you get these crazy, you say fishing lines. I mean, they could be, I would just caution to people to look and say, how much volume was actually done at those low prices, right? It's something called down ticking that I, I track mercilessly every single week because I see it happening so many times. And a lot of times it's on a thousand shares, 5,000 shares, nothing, right. like no volume, right? So yeah, the chart is the chart. However, let's like, like take a deeper look at, you know, how much money actually was transacted at that level. Yeah. All right. Uh, John, uh, hopefully things a little brighter here in a, uh, two months time when you and I see each other again overseas. I look forward to catching up with you once again. I appreciate your time. Thanks so sure. much for spending some of it with us here on the podcast. Um, you know, you mentioned your website, fennecconsulting.com. Uh, how might other people kind of get in touch with you or follow up with, with questions? Yeah, sure. I'll send you my contact details. So people will have my email address. Um, but I think that's an easy way to get me. Um, I'm very responsive and I do try to help everyone that approaches us. So if you're working with a limited budget, you know, we try to work with people like that. You know, I've had 
hurricanes affect me four times in my life. So I've helped a couple of hurricane victims. I'm always trying to help people get in now with a service like mine or competitors because this is the time you need to start looking at this stuff, right? I mean, it wasn't three summers ago. That was the high. This is approaching, you know, what I think to be a short-term low. All right. That's John Fennick, everybody. John, thanks so much. Have yourself a great rest of your week. Thanks a lot, Trevor. I appreciate it. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.